This episode is brought to you by Howl.fm. Howl is a brand new app and website that changes the way you think about podcasts, featuring dozens of original miniseries, audio documentaries, and comedy albums. Premium access for your iOS or Android phone plus web is only $4.99 per month, but you can try one month free by signing up through the web and using the promo code LEFT. So that's H-O-W-L.fm and use the promo code LEFT for a one month free trial of Howl Premium. Now welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Edge of Sports Radio, The Young Turks, Economic Update, On the Media, OpDocs, Counterspin, and Intersection. The news of the last week is why we decided to do this show in the first place. This show is about the collision of sports and politics. And rarely, not just in recent times, but in history, have you seen that collision happen more dramatically than what took place at Missouri with the football team going on strike and refusing to play unless Tim Wolf, the president of the school, stepped down. What we saw here were the chickens coming home to roost. Not just the chickens, but the billion dollar golden goose of college sports coming home to roost. To take a step back, I'm guessing people know the story, but there have been incidents going on for years at Missouri about racism, racist harassment of students, but also about homophobia, also about gender violence. A lot of these stories and a lot of dissatisfaction among the student body, feeling like they're marginalized and feeling like like they're not being heard, but the centrality of that anger really was the black student body at Missouri. Then you had Jonathan Butler, a grad student at Missouri, 25 years old, go on a hunger strike, and this was on October 23rd, and he said he would not eat until school president Tim Wolf stepped down. Now, several members of the football team went and visited with Jonathan Butler. They spoke to him, and they came back to their coach, Gary Pinkle, as he described later, with t- they, they had tears in their eyes. And they said they felt like they could no longer be silent. They felt like they could no longer be on the sideline. And they effectively went on strike. It started Saturday night with the announcement that the black and brown players on that team would not play next week against BYU. And then that extended to the entire team. And a photo that went from Gary Pinkle's own Twitter account of everybody standing together. And they quoted Martin Luther King. They said, injustice somewhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this is an utterly incredible story. This is history uh, writ large. And I think what why I said that this is the chickens coming home to roost or the golden goose coming home to roost is that Missouri is not exceptional in this regard. But Tim Wolf made sure that football was at the economic, psychological, and hell, you might even want to say religious center of the campus. I mean, Tim Wolf said he was going to cut health care, he was going to cut academic programs, but he was going to give $72 million to refurbish the football stadium. It was football, 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 because he said, we are in the Southeastern Conference and we have to start acting like the Southeastern Conference. Well, guess what? For a lot of students, that just was not okay. But what it did was it put the football players in a prime position to not just enact change, but actually topple a school president. Uh, Tim Wolf makes $459,000 a year 
or at least he did. If the team did not play this weekend against BYU, the school would have forfeited $1 million just that week alone. So the football players, they made this decision to not play until Jonathan Butler was done with his hunger strike and until Tim Wolf stepped down. And when they made that step, it wasn't just that they exerted their economic power. It was that the story then went not just national, but global. All of a sudden, masses of people who had no idea what was happening at Missouri knew what was happening. The sleeping giant had woken up. And it's a remarkable story, and it's a story that needs to be told again and again. And it's one that I think is going to have a ripple effect across the college landscape. And, of course, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It came just a couple of years after the Northwestern football players said that they wanted to organize a union. It comes two years after the Grambling football players said they would not play unless they felt like they had safe working conditions. So what you're starting to see is a realization among NCAA athletes of their own power in this multi-billion dollar business. And the last point I want to make before I bring on Paul Hewitt is I think it's also so important as we talk about this as a football story. And don't get me wrong. It's great that Mike and Mike on ESPN are talking about the football strike. It's great that this has wall-to-wall coverage for all the people who only read the sports page but don't read the front page. That's fantastic. But at the same time, what that can also lead is an overemphasis on what the football players did. And we have to realize that if it wasn't for the student organizing, if it wasn't for Jonathan Butler, if it wasn't for a largely female-led movement on campus that connected issues of race and of gender and of homophobia and fighting these things, uh, fighting the pernicious oppression that people felt like took, took place on that campus, if it wasn't for that, then you don't see the football players stand up. I think you got to look at it like a stool. you got the students, you got the football players, the student athletes, you got the faculty who was willing to stand with them, and because of that, the stool was able to hold and you saw a new blueprint for exercising power on a college campus are you blind or do you see either way we should agree we're up against an enemy common enemy So at the University of Missouri, uh, we had students get together and want to take action on the racism they saw at their campus. Now, we covered the story yesterday to give you all the details. A bunch of people yelling the N-word at students as they're uh, going along in their lives. They feel intimidated by that, and they feel discouraged by that. I mean, they work hard. You get into a college, uh, and and you feel alone because only 7% of the student body there is black. And people keep coming and throwing the N-word in your face no matter what you do, right? You can see how that would be discouraging, right? So they wanted to fight back on this, and they wanted their administration to help them. Now, look, you can argue about the different ways that the administration might be able to do something to help protect some of their students. But the administration didn't take any action. So uh, eventually the students got tired of it and said, if you don't take any action, well, then you should go, because obviously you're not here to look out for us. So they asked for the resignation of President Tim Wolf. Uh, one of the students did an eight-day hunger strike. And finally, of course, it only uh, got uh, the... The intended result, when the Missouri football team and over 30 uh, black football players said, we're not going to play football anymore until he resigns. Whoa, football, now it's important. 
before the kid who's on the hunger strike, he's black kid, he dies, he's hungry, who cares? Football, oh my God, all right, now he's got to resign, and he does. President Tim Wolf resigns. So, of course, what happens? Outrage all over TV. Scarborough goes on uh, MSNBC, says, does anybody know why this guy got fired? Nobody can figure it out. <laughs> no, I can figure it out, because he kept saying he was going to do something, and he didn't do anything about the constant uh, harassment of his students that he's supposed to be looking out for. That's your answer, okay? It's not that complicated, right? So now uh, we go to Fox News where it's only going to get worse. And what does Fox News do? Classic trick. Uh, they're going to bring in Kevin Jackson. He's an African-American guy that you're going to see. Lisa Durden, uh, African-American woman you're going to see, is on the right side. She says, hey, look, there was a racial slurs. There was also swastika that they etched out of feces. Disgusting, wrong, anti-Semitic. And Durden, I'm sorry, Jackson, as you'll see, was like, who cares? Okay, anyway, now here comes the debate. Oh, I think it's ridiculous that they would even consider resigning. Look, Megan, we had Donald Sterling, who had a private conversation exposed, and he lost his team. We had Paula Dean, who 40 years ago maybe used the N-word at some point. And today, we have people who did nothing, who lost their jobs. If this is something that America wants to face, the idea that you could be the CEO of a company, somebody at your company could, could say something off color, pardon the pun, to somebody black, and they're going to throw a conniption, then who wants, to, who wants to lead? And the second part of it is, when we look at black unemployment, just being blunt, who wants to hire people that every time th there's any racial insensitivity of any sort, it doesn't even have to be real, they, they're going to be losing their jobs. I care about all people. Yeah, you are. So when you hurt people, Jews, women, black, got hurt? kids, you hurt everybody. So excuse me if I care about hurt? Jews. Okay. Excuse me. Who got I, hurt? I, I, Nobody got hurt. Yeah, yeah. They get called racial slurs. Uh, one case, a bunch of guys in a pickup truck come and intimidate you. and yell, Look, I'm going to start using the word so it's real for you, okay? And, and the guy who explains, well, student body president, by the way, uh, and he capitalized it. So the guys come in a pickup truck and they yell at, at, at the students, hey, nigger, okay? I don't know about you. If I'm in the middle of Missouri and a bunch of guys in a pickup truck start yelling at me and I'm black, I, I'd, I'd feel a little harassed. I'd be worried that somebody was going to get hurt, right? But here, he's like, oh, no, no, no. It's, if you, nobody bashed your head in, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. Oh, don't throw a conniption, Fred. What's the big conniption fit about? So your job is to go out there and say, yes, sir, right? Oh, no, no, yeah, man, now you're gonna, everybody's worried about what they're going to say to black people. No, say whatever the fuck you want to black people. Who cares? Uh, I, I'm black, I pardon you. Yeah, do that. Yeah, absolutely. Racial slurs, who cares? Really, Kevin? Okay, again, I'm going to use the word so that, that we keep it real, okay? So that it has the power that it was directed at these students. If, let's say, you dared risk any of your salary at Fox News and went on one day and said, oh, no, no, yeah, white people are racist sometimes and... And we should fix that. And you get off the air and their vice president of news says to you, hey, nigger, who the hell do you think you are? Get in line, boy. Then what do you do, Kevin? What do you do? Well, somebody walks up just like you and says, hey, what are you getting hurt for? Nobody got hurt. He didn't hit you. Nobody got hurt. What are you getting all emotional for? Don't throw a conniption, Kevin. You see, those words do matter, Kevin. They do matter. They mattered when they were lynching African Americans in this country. They still matter when they threaten them. And then there's this intimidation on campus. That's why the students are mad. Okay, but your job is to say, no, no, no. 
The boss is right. Boss is right. Boss is right. Now, if somebody says that word to you, you just bow your head. Now, Kevin, I know you're not going to complain I said it, right? Because you love the word. You think there's nothing wrong with the word. I know you're not hurt by it. You're not offended by it, right, Kevin? Because if you are, shut the fuck up. Because that's what you tell all other black people every day. Shut the fuck up. Okay, now, the idiots at Fox News aren't done yet. So let's bring on uh, Bowling, the thick-necked idiot. What do you think? Eric? I think it all came down to the football team. The yep. scary thing is what happens when the next campus has an aggrieved student group that says, listen, this is we've been wronged. Hey, football team, we do the same. African-Americans on the football team, we do the same thing. I can have more presidents needing to step down. This is a four and five football team. If I were that athletic director and coach, I'd say, fine, goodbye. We'll find 25 or 30 new ball players to sit in. They, we may lose the rest Some of the season. Some of them can season. actually score. I'll take anyone on this team. Hey, I'll take the basketball team. You want to come play football? Let's go see how, how it works out. What are you? What you're doing is you're taking a PC culture already on campus. Mm -hmm. You're exploiting it. Everyone's walking around like PC zombies now. So now, if you are bothered by someone calling you the N-word, you're a PC zombie. Just suck it up, man. And if you don't like it. You, the black football players on Missouri, your job is to play football. Know your role, okay? Go on and, and perform for us. Entertain us. And if you don't know your role and we call you the N-word and you're offended by that, that's too bad. You're fired. I'll bring in someone else. Who cares? Just as long as I can show you where your place is. Gee, I wonder why the students at University of Missouri didn't like that attitude. So Fox News loves that attitude. Unsurprisingly, they supported the president. By the way, the president of the University of Missouri does not have the attitude Fox News does. His attitude is actually much better than Fox News. Okay, And he had to go because he wouldn't protect his students. Now, luckily, the coach at the University of Missouri didn't feel that way at all. He said, we're united, we're one team, we're a family. But at Fox News, they don't want you to be a family. They want to rip you apart and say, I can say whatever I want to you, boy. And if you don't like it, I'll fire you because I'm the boss. Yeah, that was the old days. You're not the boss of us anymore. So go ahead and fuck off. Over the last week, it became clear that there were serious problems at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Those problems included a new administration brought in recently to run the university, and in their own words, to run it like a business. I have to say, as an economist, that it is a mystery to me, as it is to many economists, where this phrase, running it like a business, came from. The, th the reasonable thing to run like a business would be, you guessed it, a business. And a university, last I noticed, wasn't a business. It's not producing and selling things. It's trying to educate people, which is a different activity. And why one should think we should run it like a business means you don't understand the difference between producing and selling a good and service on the one hand and teaching people on the other.
Imagine if we arrived at the headquarters of businesses and threw out their leadership in order to bring in someone who will run it like a school. We would all think, wait a minute, there's a confusion here. But no matter, that's what American universities have been doing for a while now, as we live in a culture which thinks that something magical attaches to the word business. So in came the businessman, uh, Mr. Wolf. No relationship to me, I'm happy to say. And he did one of those things that business folks sometimes do. He thought it would be really good for the university to save money, so he took away the medical insurance coverage of teaching assistants. You know, graduate students trying to write their doctoral dissertations, complete their education, become thereby the most educated people in the country. What a useful thing for a university to do is to make them all worried that they will not be covered if they have an injury, that they will not be covered if they get ill, that they will have financial troubles on top of already being poorly paid for the work they do as instructors, as adjuncts, and so on. This may be good business, but even that's a question, isn't it? Well, let's pursue the story. Trouble began right away. Turns out the graduate students didn't think this was a contribution to the quality of either their education or that of the students they were responsible to teach. And it turns out that much of the faculty sympathized with the graduate students and didn't agree either and began to be critical of the leader. He didn't get it too well, so he didn't change his policies. Meanwhile, this business leader in Missouri also managed to offend the growing number of African-American students on the campus by being remarkably troubled by racial discrimination, racial insensitivity, incidents on the campus that should have been major alarms about racial tensions there uh, for some period of time. It got so bad that the athletes, many of whom were African-American, on the football team got together explained what was going on in the racial tensions, explained it to their fellow white athletes, explained it to the student body, got the, the sympathy that is a testimony to what is possible when black and white young people get together and realize an injustice when they see it and commit themselves to do it, and realize that there's something linking the miserable treatment afforded African Americans on the one hand, and the same miserable treatment afforded to workers, white and black, on the same campus by the same business-minded leaders, that they got together and they went to the coach, a white man, and they said, we don't want to play football for a university run this way. And we're not going to play football until the leader, this new business leader, is out of here, is gone, is fired. Well, it turns out that here economics play a big role. You can't make money at these business-run universities unless they can sell what the businesses are interested in, which has a lot to do with seats at sporting events, football games, basketball games, in big arenas, in big auditoriums, in big playing fields. And when the athletes said, we're not playing, that was money that the University of Missouri wouldn't get. And you hit them then in their pocketbook. 
And this was a crescendo. The athletes wouldn't play. The graduate teachers were threatening not to teach with their medical insurance taken away. The faculty were angry that all of this was happening. But that last straw was the solidarity of the African-American athletes who took the leadership and galvanized white supporters, white fellow students too, many of them. And the president was booted out of there last week. That top of the, the business community taking over was fired, not by anyone else, by their own action and lack of action on the obvious problems they could not or would not solve. It was a sign of black and white people getting together, understanding that helping each other with what afflicts them points them together at the same enemy, and that if they get together, they have the power, and the people who run the universities don't. It was a wonderful lesson, not only in working people and students who do a lot of work, too, on the modern business-run university, that they, if they get together, have the power, and that the power of those at the top dissolves like sugar in water the minute those at the bottom say, we've had it, no more, we're going to take charge and rearrange things. It is a tragedy that it took this long. And it is a tragedy now to see how many in the media need to portray all of these events as if they were only about racial difference, racial tension. Yes, that was part of the mix. It was an ugly, unjustified abuse of African-American citizens. But that's not all it was. And what made the change was not only the upset and anger and the leadership provided by the African-American students and athletes. It was the fact that that leadership brought together African-American and white students, teachers, athletes, coaches, that unity made it impossible for the university business run to continue business as usual. And that's an important straw in the winds of change sweeping across the United States. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
At the University of Missouri on Monday, a skirmish over media access in a much larger battle over racial discrimination. Just a hundred miles from Ferguson, student protests led University President Tim Wolf to resign. Wolf was under fire for not addressing racially charged incidents on campus. Black students complained of repeated racial slurs. A swastika was found in a dorm. Some say there's been racial tension on the predominantly white campus for years. For a week, an African-American graduate student named Jonathan Butler staged a hunger strike that he said would only end with Wolf's resignation. Also Monday, an altercation. You need to go. Yep. Students, uh, can you tell him how you much you don't have a right to, to take go? our photos. No. No. A student photographer, Tim Tai, on assignment for ESPN, explained his rights as the protesters refereed access to the university quad, calling it a media-free safe space and Linking arms to keep reporters out. This is the First Amendment that protects your right to stand here, protects mine. The same video showed a communications professor calling for muscle to keep reporters out. She's since apologized, but too late. Condemnation of the assault on press freedom was swift and fierce. Stephen Thrasher, a writer at large for The Guardian U.S., reported from the campus, as a journalist and an African-American, first he was stunned, and then he got it. The thing that was really shocking for me that I started hearing were these chants that I've heard. I've covered Occupy Wall Street. I've covered Black Lives Matter over the past few years. And I heard them using these chants that have typically been deployed against the police. Back up, back up. We want freedom, freedom. And they were directing it towards the media. I thought, what is it that they are protesting against? On the one hand, I realized they were protesting media that has misrepresented what they've been doing in the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in Ferguson, which is not far away. And when I thought about the relationship with the police, protesters often talk about how in the Black Lives Matter movement that there's a systemic racism that pervades policing. It's not about good cops and bad cops. It's not about white cops or black cops. They're saying that the whole system is racist. And I felt like they were also saying the media is systemically racist. So it doesn't matter whether I'm a good journalist or a bad journalist or a black journalist. They are very distrustful of the system itself. Right. I can see that. But this is a public university. This protest was taking place in a public space. You wrote about a sense of privilege. You're used to being able to walk wherever you want when you're covering a demonstration. You noted that, of course, you wouldn't go to a concert in a public park and demand to be let backstage. But is that really the right parallel? I mean, we're talking about basic access. Is that privilege? Why I think that this was so hard for media is, one, I mean, we don't like to be told we can't go into some place. That's fine. But also, I don't think a lot of media professionals are used to having the terms of any interaction with young black people dictated to them. You know, they're not used to a young black person saying, this is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to interact with each other. They had hashtags on their signs, so they had a real sense that they could get media out without the media. They could kind of go around us. They kept asking people to email them. They didn't want uh, students sort of giving interviews off the cuff. And they just wanted a space that they could talk without media being right in their face where they were sleeping for several days. These protesters are incredibly sophisticated and intelligent. They understand systemic racism very well, and they read media through that lens. So they don't think it's necessarily about one person or the other. This is completely my speculation, but I think one of the things they very specifically did not want by that safe space is they didn't want a camera finding one person goofing off and then having that be the image of their movement. 
I mean, I think one reason why they, they turn away from this kind of media is because they see it as reductive when they think, well, I could be tweeting with people every seven seconds. Why do I need to just have one quote that's going to stand for me and have myself judged by that one thing? Knowing all too well how the system works. Since the confrontation, the protesters have circulated flyers about First Amendment rights and the two professors shown in the video yelling, have apologized. Why this note of reconciliation? One, they didn't want the story to just become about that. And they got what they wanted. They went through this incredibly difficult thing and they got it. This is the first protest in the year and a half I've been covering Black Lives Matter that was organized around black joy. And somehow we've made a way to talk about all these problems with the media. But overall, from the moment that it came out that Wolf was resigning, there was dancing, there was singing. And having covered the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, I've traveled around the country to a lot of these sites. It's always about death. It's always about sadness. And here they actually had a victory. And there was a real joy in it. Mm-hmm. In a column on the Washington Post site, the journalist Terrell Germain Starr wrote, quote, The black community distrusts the news media because it has failed to cover black pain fairly. How do you create as a reporter to an audience that would never have experienced it a pathway to understanding black pain? It's a very difficult thing to do. You have to start by listening to people, by giving black people the benefit of the doubt. There's something that happens so often around when a black man is killed. The first assumption in media and popular discourse is that he did something to deserve it. You know, we saw it with the young black woman who was hurt in the South Carolina classroom when she was slammed by the cop. There's this, oh, what was she doing? She was on her phone. Well, he must have had reason to throw her onto the ground. The young black girl outside the McKinney pool, oh, she spoke back to the officer to tell him, I'm walking on my way home. Well, she shouldn't have said anything and, and she would be okay. And you see it in, in the zoo as well. Well, why are these kids so sensitive? Why can't they take being called these names? And you have to have some people who look like the people they're covering. I know this from being the only person in the room and many times in my career. It's a hard case to make to your colleagues, and it's not easy work. It's, it's work that takes a long time. It's work that often can't be fit very simply into, into a short story. And the story of black pain is so often just commodified and exploited. Another sub-story this week has been that Jonathan Butler seems to come from a well-to-do family. That's been used to try to discredit him because the underpinning of this country is that black people should not be operating from a place of education or power or something other than pain. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. Stephen Thrasher is a writer at large for The Guardian U.S. Understanding and empathy for all others. Appreciation as a half for the have nots. Recognizing people's worth is decided by the content of the character and not what they got. I get upset because it seems so hard for us. When we lie to ourselves, we sound so crazy. We tell ourselves that they don't work as hard as us. They could be like us if they just were lazy. I think it's just an excuse. That allows us to treat them as less human. Cause once we begin to take it as the truth, it justifies all the evil things that we do to them. Some people work hard and barely scrape by. Others work hard and end up rich. It doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate success, but understand the systematic hurdles that exist. Perspectives. Birds eye view. Beautiful appear. Might shed a tear. Racism means basically like a large part of a 
a race feels that they're superior to another race. And so, and so not only do they believe that, but they act on it. Examples would be in class. Sometimes I'd be the only black kid and we read a book like, I don't know, Huck Finn. And then there's that uncomfortable moment, the, the magic word <laughs> come up and people would look at you and like, what's his reaction and things like that. I was walking home from school with this one white girl and we just gone off the bus and we were about to, we were almost home. And there were these group of black kids that just gone out of school. And she was like, oh, let's cross the street. There's a group of black kids. I don't want to run into them. And so she told me, which I don't even know why she would do that. I used to wear a sweatband, like, just to reinforce my wrist. And I had a teacher come up to me and say, you should take it off because it looks gang-affiliated. I've been in situations where, you know, I had to cross the street because I didn't want to scare the white lady that was walking. I would actually, it would get to a point where I would start to count how many times a woman would clutch her bag. When I was 16, I was leaving my mom's house in my pajamas, which had snowmen on them, um, with my brother, and we were actually stopped by the police rather aggressively. I've been stopped by the cops on my way between classes, because we have two separate buildings, walking from one building to the other building, as my white students in the same class walk by me. It's kind of upsetting, because we live in a world where my mom has to be afraid when I walk outside from the people that are like meant to protect me. And I just, I don't like when my mother feels like that. You know, I love my mother. She should always, I want her to always be happy. You know, I walk tall, I keep my head up, very, you know, try to be very articulate and, and polite. Um, and so, I, of course, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be fine because I act a certain way. And, of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, people, the way people perceive you, you know, is not up to you. My parents taught me, oh, you know, cops are your friends. You're supposed to, you know, they're here to protect you. But all I'm seeing is the opposite. So how can I not be free, afraid when I feel like I'm being hunted? When I feel like I'm there to fill a quota? We are in a so-called free society. And as a black man, we literally don't feel free. Um, we don't know what freedom is. Every time we're, we're killed, the first thing you see on the news is, oh, criminal record or something like that. So from the, from the second the bullet hits us, already we're starting to be dehumanized. With black people like myself, we don't get as many chances as, as, as they do. So you have to be aware and you have to watch out and you can't mess up. This was an extremely emotionally taxing process for me in terms of coming to terms with maybe the, the nature of, of racism in my own life and in this country and in this world. And if you wait until somebody is 12, 13, and 14 to put that on them, it's, it's really, it can be really difficult. My dad, he's just like the honest one. He's like, listen, son, like there are things in this world like you have to, you kind of have to watch out. He doesn't want me to live in fear, but he wants me to be aware. I want people to know that I'm perfectly fine and I'm not going to hurt anybody or do anything bad. I should be judged about like who I who I am and like and what kind of person I am. My parents would tell me, especially my mom, she would tell me, you have to endure, you have to muscle through it, and like, and this is no different. It's a part of being a person of color in America. And there's a certain comfortability associated with that because if I know that something is inevitable, then I know how to deal with it. I, fortunately. I've had parents who have said, this is what you do. Mom and Dad, I'll be fine because you did a good job raising me. Uh, 
you gave me all the resources and the time and the blood, sweat, and tears、um, to make me a good man, an honorable man, and the foundation to survive in this country. I want you to know that I will act in a appropriate manner and do everything that you told me to do because I do love you, and I know that everything you say is not for a reason and not just to talk to talk. And I love you. Reportedly, independent investigators deem reasonable the actions of Cleveland police, who fatally shot 12-year-old Tamir Rice within seconds of arrival on the scene. The Fairfax, Virginia Sheriff's Office released video of officers in hazmat suits tasering shackled, hooded Natasha McKenna to death to demonstrate the deputies' professionalism and restraint. Many in media too seem more invested in teasing out how such outrages actually, when you look into it, pass legal muster, than in asking what needs to be changed so that they don't. If Black Lives Matter is to be more than a shibboleth, politicians need only say out loud in debates. It will mean pushing criminal justice reform higher up on media's agenda. Here to discuss how that can happen is Michelle Jawando. She's vice president for legal progress at the Center for American Progress. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Michelle Jawando. Thank you so much for having me. Well, some will always call each example of police misconduct that goes unsanctioned an aberration,、uh, even as they pile up. But it seems like a critical mass of people have come to see that some of the structural elements of the criminal justice system are themselves a problem, and particularly for people of color, that makes an opportunity to press for real improvements.、Uh, some big and bold, and some maybe more achievable and closer to hand. Some maybe as simple as collecting data on police-involved killings. That's exactly right. There's a conversation happening about kind of the inequities and the way that the basic functioning of the criminal justice system, whether we're talking about police practices, use of force, aggressive policing, arrest and prosecution policies, whether we're thinking about things like the severity of criminal sentences and the disparate impact many of these policies have on communities of color. And so now that we are at the center of the debate, it is time to really look at well, what are those policies that we can put in place to address. Some of these challenges. Well, yeah, because I think there's a lot of anger and outrage, and folks who say, you know, the whole system is corrupt. And at the same time, we want to translate that into some things that can be done today, you know, and then some things that can be done next week, and then some things that maybe will take five or ten years. But there are things that could be changed right now. One of the things we talk about is implicit bias training, and the need for almost ongoing training for all federal law enforcement officers and state and local police involved in federal task forces. and And we made that nexus because how else do you kind of connect federal law enforcement training with state and locals? One of the reasons we think that this training must be ongoing. Similar to how attorneys have to do continuing legal education, 
if we start to acknowledge that there is a difference in the way that we see each other and view each other, and sometimes there are subconscious acts on that without that knowledge. So, for instance, in the case of Tamir Rice, he's a 12-year-old boy, but we know social scientists tell us that African-American boys in particular are seen as usually five years older. So when that police arrived at the scene and shot Tamir Rice, we know he called into the office, 20-year-old man down. Now, what was it about that interaction that immediately saw this 12-year-old boy, not as a boy, but as a 20-year-old man? And so that's what implicit bias training looks at, and that's one of the many solutions we put forth. Well, it's interesting because uh, the bias training tries to interrupt that guilt loop, you know, that to mm-hmm. take away the idea that only racists would racially profile. Uh, so I think that's actually a key component because it, it takes the conversation out of a kind of pro-con and says, look, but there are best best practices here and let's enact them, you know. Another one of those which I alluded to earlier is just getting the information about <laughs> police-involved killings. One of the things that the media did show up uh, as we began talking about this after Ferguson was you couldn't even get the information because the information is not there. Exactly. I mean, you even have the director of the FBI say that it is unfortunate that we have better data from the Washington Post and the Guardian on police-involved shootings than we do at the federal government level. And so that's something that we can change overnight. And I know the president's task force looking at 21st century policing, this was one of the recommendations we put forth that it seems like they would like to make some movement on. And it's important that we recognize this because that then gives us a baseline so that we can understand where the problems are and that we can develop then smart laws and policies to address what many people feel anecdotally is this kind of inappropriate and illegal use of force. Well, I think it's interesting that California law enforcement, who will now have to record race-ethnicity data on stops and and what happens after that, are sort of complaining that, some of them anyway, well, this will cause us to racially profile. We didn't do it in the past, but now if we have to actually record the race and ethnicity of people that we arrest, that will lead us to think about it in a way that we weren't thinking about it before. There's always a kind of a pushback on the collection of information, but it seems to me that from reporters' perspective and from policy advocates' perspective, more information ought to be non-controversial in a way. I mean, we ought to be able to all be behind more sunlight. This is a very difficult thing to grapple with, right, because we have to continually think about the way that race and class and socioeconomic status are wrapped up into our notions of policing and law enforcement and safety and community. But yet if we do not confront what are very real uh, disparities and how people of color are treated in the system, And if we don't pay attention to what are the real facts underlying that behavior, then there's no way we can move forward to rebuild trust. And the reality is, and this is one of the things that I encourage my friends in law enforcement, is that the reality is you cannot be an effective person in law enforcement without the support and the respect and the trust of the local communities in which you serve. That relationship is sacrosanct and it is so important. And yet you have to challenge yourself 
yourself to figure out how you repair what we know now are fissures all over the country and that relationship. And this is one of the ways to do that. Well, let me ask you finally and briefly, what role would you like to see criminal justice questions playing in electoral politics right now? I mean, is there is it enough a part of the conversation, do you think? You know, I often say if we are a country that holds ourselves out as the shining city on the hill, then we have to look at the damage that we have done to communities, particularly African-American and Latino, poor communities in, in this country because of disparate treatment and policing or whether it's this history of mass incarceration in these communities. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really ready to make the moral changes that are necessary in order to repair these communities. We've been speaking with Michelle Jawando of the Center for American Progress. Find them online at AmericanProgress.org. Michelle Jawando, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself. It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give a damn about a negro. Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero. Get it back to the kids who the hell care. One less hungry mouth on the welfare. First ship him, don't let him deal with brothers. Give him guns, step back, watch them kill each other. It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead. I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, hashtag year without Tamir. A recent study titled Black Millennials in America, created by the Black Youth Project and reported on at Color Lines, found that 54% of young black people say that either they or someone they know have been harassed by police or been the victim of police violence. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that the independent investigations into the killing of 12-year-old Cleveland child Tamir Rice found no wrongdoing on the part of the officer who pulled the trigger. Retired FBI agent Kimberly Crawford wrote in her report that Officer Lehman couldn't have known Tamir's gun was fake. As reported in the New York Times, Crawford explained that, quote, the question is not whether every officer would have reacted the same way. Rather, the relevant inquiry is whether a reasonable officer confronting the exact same scenario under identical conditions could have concluded that deadly force was necessary, unquote. Cleveland.com quotes the Florida law enforcement officer and instructor who also investigated the shooting as saying, quote, This unquestionably was a tragic loss of life, but to compound the tragedy by labeling the officer's conduct as anything but objectively reasonable would also be a tragedy. <laughs> right. That would be a fucking tragedy. On the anniversary of Tamir Rice's murder, his family has asked for our solidarity and our action. The group Ferguson Action invites people around the country to join the Rice family and the community of Cleveland as they honor his life and continue to fight for justice. At fergusonaction.com, you can pledge to take action by signing on to the statement, quote, I pledge to stand with the family of Tamir Rice and the community of Cleveland. We demand justice for Tamir Rice and an end to the war against black children, unquote. 
You can also find an action happening this weekend in your area or create one if there isn't an action scheduled. The hashtag YearWithoutTamir is being used to coordinate and amplify actions around the country. So be sure to follow now through Sunday as participants post live updates. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. If ending the murder of young people of color at the hands of police matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about hashtag year without Tamir via social media so that others in your network can participate and amplify the message too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage? Wes, how is covering this Tamir Rice case different than other cases of police violence that you've reported on since Ferguson, uh, especially given that it happened in our hometown? Of course, I mean, I think that that was one of the things that was very striking. You know, I, I got back to Cleveland early December after living in Missouri for a month waiting for the grand jury decision. And so in many ways, I wanted a return home to get away from this kind of constant discussion around police shootings and race that I'd been covering so intensely. It's only to come home to have, you know, this happening in my in my backyard in a park that I'd been to before in a city where I had two younger brothers, uh, both black men who were driving around and, you know, living their lives, you know. And, and watching, you know, as I met up with friends from high school and catching up with their parents and seeing other people in the neighborhood, watching my own community be caught up in this conversation. Now, the thing about Tamir Rice was that one of the reasons it was such a gripping and remains such a gripping case is that this is a child playing with a toy in a park near his home. You know, there, there's not the same ambiguity that had existed in so many of these other shooting cases. It was just extremely heartbreaking to watch that video. Yeah, and as you say, again, we had it on video as opposed to the Michael Brown shooting. Well, exactly. There just wasn't the ambiguity. Well, I want to caution against us saying there's been no ambiguity because, as both of you know, including with the prosecutor McGinty increasingly uh, in a definitely concerning way, not everyone agrees that there is no ambiguity there. That, and that's been part of the problem with so much of what we're doing here and trying to cover it and having a conversation every single time. I host a discussion on my public Facebook wall about Tamir Rice. I and a number of others have to immediately start correcting misperceptions and outright lies about what occurred. It seems like the video in and of itself has not been enough to convince some people that we've got a real problem here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of victim blaming going on in this story. I mean, Tamir never should have been carrying a toy that looks so much like a gun or he shouldn't have pulled it out around other people or police officers. Why do you think people jump so quickly, Connie, to blame a 12-year-old kid? I think that's an excellent question, and I think we have to look at who is saying that. I'm not hearing that or seeing that from many people of color. I'm hearing that from white people, and, and I'm white, you know, and it's, it's very disconcerting. For example, what you just said, they say it all the time. Actually, he didn't pull the gun out, the toy gun out of his waistband. We, yeah. From the video, you can see he never got to that. And blaming him, when he was playing with a toy gun, that he was not allowed to own. I just interviewed last month for Politico, his mother, at length. And it's one of the first things she wants to emphasize over and over again. She said when she sees that video, which, by the way, she watches all the time still, she sees a boy, in part, having a lot of fun because he knows he's playing with something he's not allowed to have. 
Wes, I want to contextualize this within the gun debate a little bit. Tamir carrying a BB gun and you got the trigger happy cop. How does this fit into gun reporting that you've been doing? And actually, you know, the gun incidents that we've been suffering through in this country really within the last year. Of course, I think that it raises, you know, fascinating questions about what happens. You know, we live in a country with millions of guns and millions of guns that are owned both legally and illegally. And so much of our conversation around police shootings is couched in this language of armed or unarmed. The idea that if there's the presence of a weapon, this shooting must be justified or it must be okay. Um, however, it's much more complicated than that. You know, Ohio is a state where, you know, many people are carrying guns legally. And so the presence of a weapon does not in and of itself mean something happened illegally. We, we saw this in Florida, in Palm Beach Gardens very recently, a shooting of, of uh, Corey Jones, who was a church drummer who was getting back late from a gig and his car broke down. And as he's waiting for his car to, to come get fixed, to get towed away, an officer who's in plain clothes, not driving a cruiser, pulls up on him. Well, Jones has a concealed carry permit. He's carrying a weapon, in fact, you know, for this type of situation exactly, when his car breaks down at 3 a.m. on the weekend in the middle of the highway. And we end up seeing, you know, this type of armed confrontation where the police officer pulls his gun and fires, in part because he says he's scared of this man he's now encountered with a gun. And so, we've made a decision that we are going to live in a society with all of these weapons, right? And what that means is that it complicates a lot of these interactions because what we know based on precedent essentially is that police officers, if they can convince a judge or they can convince a DA or they convince a grand jury that they were scared, whether reasonably or not, are not going to get charged with crimes in these shootings. Now, Connie, Wes and I both grew up in the Shaker Heights where, you know, not a whole lot goes wrong, frankly. But... And where I raised my daughter, I think, you know, I was a single mom there for 10 years in Shaker Heights. Indeed. And Mm -hmm. yet about 20 minutes from the high school walking, a five-month-old baby girl, Evie Wakefield, became a victim of the city's increased gun violence just a couple weeks ago. Talk to me a little bit about what's happening in Cleveland as far as the shootings and also sort of how that all contextualizes with the original conversation about Tamir. Well, I think those of us who live in the city, and I do, one of the things we know is there's been a lot more gang violence going on recently. But that's a very different issue, uh, and it's very hard, challenging to engage suburbanites, even many of the good people in Shaker Heights, to understand that that is very close to their homes, actually, and they should be concerned about what what contributes to this sort of violence. So when we have to start talking about poverty, which I feel like some days people just want to throw up their hands and say, well, Connie, if you're going to do that... It's such a mess. Well, yeah, but how can we have that conversation distinct from the issues of neighborhoods that have driven so many students into, so many young people into criminal activity? It's all connected. With the Tamir Rice case, we got, you know, what we haven't mentioned yet is the officer who shot him should not have been hired by the city. He was let go during his probation period in Independence because he was considered to be unstable and unqualified to be a police officer. And what does he do? He gets hired by Cleveland police. And now he still has that job. I mean, why hasn't this guy been fired? What do you guys think? Well, they're both on, uh, they're not on administrative leave. They both have jobs right now. They're not out, at least last I heard from the police, they were not in cruisers. Uh, and we're still waiting to see if the grand jury is going to indict. And it's not looking encouraging in that regard if you were hoping for one. Uh, and the family certainly is feeling discouraged at this point. And Prosecutor McGinty has made some public statements which indicate that he is not going to vigorously attempt to indict them. Wes, I want to get your reaction to what Prosecutor McGinty said recently about the family and the family attorneys supposedly having economic motives for pursuing the case or at least for pursuing a special prosecutor to replace him. 
Isn't that interesting? They waited until they didn't like the reports they received. They're, they're very interesting people. Let me just leave it at that. And they have their own economic motives. You know, I think that it, it, it really unfortunately didn't surprise me, although it did dishearten me a little bit, um, that, I mean, this case specifically has been, you know, very emotionally charged. Now, now many of these shootings have been, but again, uh, on the one side, this being a, uh, you know, shooting of a young child. On the other side, you know, we have to remember this shooting happened at a time right after the non-indictments of the cop who uh, killed Eric Gardner in New York, as well as the uh, Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. Also, as Cleveland was revving up for the Michael Brillo trial in the 137 Bullets case. And so you had a very polarized environment and polarized Cleveland. I remember going back and hanging out with my college roommate from the west side in Brooklyn with bunch of cops, you know, and then hanging out with my buddies on the east side who I went to high school with and, and remembering everyone be bracing for this. And, and you know, when Prosecutor McGinty came out and had and made those statements, you know, I think it to me only reminded me of what some of that environment had been now almost a year ago. There was this idea that, you know, one, could the Cleveland police investigate this fairly? And then they kicked it up to the county sheriff's department, the idea that maybe the county sheriff will handle this fairly and thoroughly. And they did their review and then kicked it over to the prosecutor. And so there's this the sense of delayed justice and delayed in a delayed question of whether or not there will be any justice. And it depends, again, on what side or what you think should happen to what you believe justice really is in this case. I just don't understand what it must take or what how much stress it must exert upon our families' minds to know that, you know, when they put their child out on the street to even just walk and go play in a park, that they got to be thinking about, like, this kind of thing happening to them. It never, never does a white parent with white children have to think about such things. We can't even begin to imagine, we try, those of us who want to consider it, but we can't begin to imagine what it must be like every morning when you send your, you know, even your adult son just being in touch with him, that you're so worried he could end up at the end of the day dead. I mean, it's just unfathomable. And then after that, and then after the fact, if, if you know, in a tragic turn, something like that were to happen, the way that these in so many cases, children become demonized, right? It's, it's Tamir Rice's fault for, for playing with this toy that, you know, listen, every young boy in America has played with a toy gun. And every kid in America has done something their parent has told them they're not allowed to do, right? And so he, be, so he becomes demonized, you know, you know, for, for that, for that, that type of interaction. We've seen all of Michael Brown's Instagram posts. We've seen all of Trayvon Martin's tweets, right? They become these caricatures and they, and they have to be forced into this, you know, form of, you know, no, really this was some crazy, you know, drugged out black thug who was waiting to attack everyone and that's what, you know, and they was six feet tall and a million pounds charging with, you know. <laughs> it happened in this case. I mean, you know, they're saying that, the, uh, that the, you know, he looked like he was 20 years old and he's 12. It just doesn't, you know, every single, and, and you just watch this demonization of, you know, I've spoken to a lot of the families in a lot of these cases, especially the ones that go national. And just watching, you know, that's one of the things that's so painful, I think, for a lot of these mothers and fathers, is that, look, like, no 16-year-old, no 17-year-old, no 18-year-old is perfect um, at all, certainly not. But it, but the idea that we're going to create these, you know, distorted caricatures to demonize children for things they said on the internet internet one time or the fact what kind of music they like it just it's to somehow try to justify taking their life it just it's, it's very troubling 
I think that's in part racism at work and white fear. They don't want to believe, a certain percentage of white Americans do not want to believe that we are capable of doing this to children. And so we must make them something other than children. I'm going to be writing a column in the next few weeks about this whole concept of the adultification of black children, particularly black males. Uh, if we can tell ourselves that they don't look like children and that they're more dangerous than children, then we don't have to admit anymore that they are children. I want to briefly add a few of my own thoughts on this to close us out. I happen to be home in Cleveland on December 15th of last year. So we're talking about three weeks after the shooting that killed Tamir. And before I went to meet my dad downtown for the Cavs game, I went to the west side, which I don't typically do. I'm an east sider through and through. But I found my way to the spot where Tamir was killed. When I approached the gazebo, I could still see the frozen car tracks in the mud and snow. I saw the memorial hula hoop and a football jersey and a bunch of stuffed animals, even a toy police car, if you can believe it. And there's a wonderful little sign in the front of it all, a little black frame. It said, Tamir Rice, you are black gold. A young man came up and he started to arrange the stuffed animals and make sure that everything was in order and actually picked out a couple of dollar bills that had been stuffed into one of the stuffed animals. And I asked him just out of interest, not out of uh, suspicion, you know, what exactly were you doing? And he said, um, well, I knew Tamir. And I asked him, I said, how did you know him? He said, he was my best friend. And he was there to make sure that money that had been left for the family at the memorial got to the family and that the area was kept clean because, you know, keep in mind, it's a December in Cleveland. It's snowing. It's cold. And he stood there for a good 10 minutes just looking at the memorial and looking at the area where his friend was shot. And I just had the thought that not only this is a child who is mourning, but he's mourning another child. And we need to get to a point where we recognize the humanity of what happened at that spot. We need to understand the inhumanity of the decision of the police officer to take his life so recklessly. And the sooner we get a grip on the fact that Tamir Rice was not the villain in his own death, the sooner that we get a grip on the wide-ranging, terrible problem of police brutality and violence, the sooner we understand that Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old boy horsing around, and that should not require a death sentence, the, the better off we're going to be. And I feel a special connection to this because I was a 12-year-old boy in Cleveland, Ohio, playing around in a park doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm still here, and Tamir's not. We shouldn't know any more names of black boys because they get killed. from Cleveland, trying to catch up on episodes and listening to the debate between Wade and Jeff. I have my two cents to throw in, and let me preface it, of course, with the information I have is anecdotal. A good friend of mine still lives in a rougher suburb of Cleveland. Not very good schools, um, not a lot of money in that suburb. He's got two daughters. One of his daughters was being bullied at school by another girl. School system really didn't do much about it. Well, 
the bully goes on to physically assault my friend's daughter. So my friend's daughter is not going to stand there and get the snot beat out of her. She fights back. Enter the resource officers. Now, because my friend's daughter was involved in a fight, even though it was self-defense, it doesn't matter. She was arrested as well as the antagonist. And now she is in the system for being a victim of bullying because we're handling these kinds of matters in a police-like fashion. The police are good at policing criminals. The police are not good at setting kids straight in school. They're not teachers. I understand Wade's point to an extent, but he's missing the bigger picture. When my car is acting up, I don't take it to my butcher. You can't have cops disciplining kids in school. They're not criminals. That's what cops deal with. Unfortunately, these days, that's not all cops are trained to deal with. And when they do come in contact with very many innocent people, they treat them like criminals, which is why we have the mass shootings and a cop is in fear of his life every time he stops someone. Anyway, that's my two cents, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Elka. Uh, in Fort Wayne. Um, long time, no call, uh, and it has nothing to do with whether it's a voice memo or a voicemail. Uh, no, nah, son, I just, I've been busy. Real women have real shit to do. So, just a couple of comments. First of all, the last few shows have been really good. I appreciate the effort, the time, the work that you've put into them as always. And, um, I thought I was going to say something about uh, Wade's comments regarding um, the popo being in schools and what happened to that young black woman. Um, but you know what? I think you did a pretty doggone good job of dispensing with his foolishness on that. And so <clears throat> I think really all I want to say to that is just, um, you know, the question that Wade needs to ask himself is why is he watching world star hip hop? and pretending as if that is some sort of representation of, of what's going on in the black community in America. That's a far more important question for him to be asking himself right now. All right, thank you so much, Jay. Have a good day. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I'm calling about uh, Brian from Arizona. And uh, this is my 400th take, I think, because, you know, as you mentioned with the uh, voicemail app, I'm probably better off just leaving a message and hoping it works. This is in response to the idea that he's nervous about participating in the conversation because he's white and he's male and all this other stuff. I partially agree with you on the idea that, you know, you got to go with what you know and recognize that your knowledge and life experience is not complete. It's not a complete view of the world. And that's true for everybody. We all have blind spots. We all think we know things that are pseudo-facts that have been passed down. Everybody has blind spots. And we all have to recognize that and be able to put our ego aside and work toward exchanging information in our, our conversations. I don't come into a conversation expecting to be 100% right. I just expect to get into the back and forth and hopefully we both come out of it at the end cooperatively as part of the conversation. We both come out more informed than we came in. 
But I disagree with you on the point that if somebody freaks out at you because you're cis and they're, you know, transgender or you're, you're, you're straight and they're gay, that's not okay. You don't get to just freak out on people because somebody else similar in appearance or sexuality or whatever has bothered you in the past, right? So just because a gay person was really mean to me today doesn't mean I get to lash out at the next gay person I talk to. That's not okay. That's, that's childish and it's just, it's just never okay. But the other thing, two more points I wanted to make is that one, our lives are just data points. Okay, so I was in the Marines for seven years, but that doesn't mean that you might not know more about the Marine Corps overall than I do. It's totally possible. Because I was looking at it from just one anecdote, just one series of experiences, and you may have poured over documentation, you may look at sociological and surveys and history books and all these other things, you may very well know more about it, even though I personally lived it. So we have to recognize that even that even if you are a, you know, all of those classes put together, you don't necessarily have any more knowledge about it than somebody who studies the issue, and you may actually have less uh, you know, the example I always give is when they show a mass shooting victim as some sort of expert. You know, just because I got my ass kicked doesn't mean I know how to fight or I know about fighting. It just means that I got punched in the face a bunch of times. But the last thing is, it's very frequent and it has to be watched out for that this can be used as a conversation stopper. If I don't like the points you're making, it's so much easier for me to say, check your privilege, you're not gay so you don't understand, you're a draft dodge, or whatever it is that, that I have that you don't. It's so much easier for me to say that and just kind of smear your credentials than it is for me to address the points that you're making. And we have to really watch diligently if we see people do that and say, no, this person made points and you didn't address those points. And make sure that the conversation remains at what is said more so than who says it. Thanks a lot, Jay, and I really appreciate the discussion. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a message at 202-999-3991. Now to Nathan. I, I feel like I have more disagreements with Nathan over things that we don't really disagree about than any other caller by far. You know, like the the arguments that he makes are, are calculated out to like the third or fourth decimal place. You, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I need a protractor to align my perfect angle of attack on his arguments. Otherwise, he's going to respond having misunderstood me by just a single degree. So to his first point, apparently he thinks I said that it's okay for people to freak out and scream at other people because, you know, one person is trans and the other person isn't, and so it's okay for a trans person to scream at someone else. That is not what I meant. Uh, I mean, have you heard me talk? <laughs> Do I sound like the kind of person who advocates screaming in people's faces? What I was saying in that conversation was I was telling a person how they should respond, how they should understand what another person was doing. You know, I mean, Nathan's been listening to the show for years. He's got to have heard me say this half a dozen times. 
there is a giant difference between explaining and excusing something. It's not okay for someone to freak out and scream at someone else, but it's certainly explainable why they might. So if you are in a conversation with someone and they scream at you because they think that you're the the white oppressor or something, it's not okay for them to have said that, obviously, but it's intellectually helpful to understand why a person may react that way. I don't think that terrorism is okay either, but I certainly understand why people put in really desperate situations would resort to it. Second point from Nathan, our entire lives are anecdotes, and the plural of anecdote is not data. Totally agreed. Excellent. Let's move on. And the third point is that uh, you know we should obviously be addressing points made in a conversation rather than who is saying them. And I agree with that as a general statement, but there's a giant asterisk next to it. So being black or being gay or being trans gives you far more expertise about racism or homophobia or trans rights than the victim of a mass shooting then gains about gun safety. So as long as we are being precise with our protractor, let's recognize that that is a terrible analogy to compare a single event in a person's life, like almost being shot or actually being shot but not being killed, to an entire inherent aspect of a person's life, like their race or gender or sexual orientation and so on. Now to me, Telling someone to check their privilege is a way of suggesting to them that their life experience may be blinding them from understanding the topic at hand. That doesn't mean that they can't get a better understanding of it, just that the statements they're making are revealing a level of ignorance that demonstrates that they are nowhere near close being able to have a cogent conversation on the subject. And that is the moment when a person gets told, check your privilege because you're sounding like an idiot. It doesn't necessarily mean that's a polite thing to say. It doesn't mean that uh, the person who says it has won the argument, but I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to say. Also, no one owes anyone else a response or a conversation in the first place. I agree that no one should use ad hominem attacks like Nathan seems to be suggesting, like to say you're wrong because you're white and not addressing the points being made. But if a person just doesn't want to answer the points you're making, they're allowed to do that. They would neither be winning nor forfeiting the argument, but not everyone is worth talking to and not every point made is worthy of a response. If they feel like your experience is so different from theirs and your demonstrated level of knowledge on a subject is so lacking, then telling someone to check their privilege may just be a way of saying that you clearly have a lot to learn, but I'm not going to be the one to teach you, especially not right now. And I think if a person is using the phrase correctly, they're not saying you're wrong because you're white. They're saying you're wrong and you're white, or you're wrong and you're cis, or you're wrong and you're straight. And the gap between your knowledge and mine is too great, and I don't want to have to teach you right now, and it's not my job to teach you. And because one of the most exhausting things about being a member of a marginalized community is having to regularly give people the 101 level version of how racism works or how trans rights works. And so it's very understandable when they're ready to just be done talking about it and want to end the debate without satisfactorily addressing every point a person has made or answering every question a person has asked. 
that is totally within their right and you don't have to be happy about it or you don't have to be satisfied with it, but it's much better to understand why a person would do that than to think, oh, they must not know what they're talking about. That's why they refuse to answer me. That's not necessarily the case. And I think it is very often not at all going to be the case. And so if you come away with that impression, you are probably demonstrating your ignorance even further rather than proving whatever point you think you're trying to prove. I'm going to come back to the wall of shame next Tuesday. I think that's going to be a weekly feature. Uh, there is definitely more shame to dole out. And uh, Kyle and Michelle, who got shamed on the last episode, uh, haven't heard from him yet. So now they get a respite. They get uh, like four more days to become members and avoid being further shamed. But if you have been intending to become a member yourself and need a little help uh, pushing yourself over the finish line, you can call in, pledge your support, and I will put you on the wall of shame until you fulfill that promise. The number 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past